From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And away we go. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. You are among friends. Uh, We are about to launch a brand new format here on The Conspiracy Show. It begins in moments with our panel. Tonight, media scientist Nelson Thal and independent researcher and host of the popular podcast Conspiracy Cafe, George Freund, uh, will join us to discuss whether the Trump train has derailed. Also in hour one, a theoretical physicist from the University of British Columbia has done the math and his verdict... Time travel to the past is possible, at least mathematically. Dr. Ben Tippett will be here to talk about what his time machine would look like and how it would operate. He calls it the TARDIS, which should sound familiar from uh, you fans of Doctor Who. Uh, then, uh, back in the 1980s, the, uh, the Soviets developed a doomsday device with the chilling nickname Dead Hand. And guess what, folks? They still have it, and by all accounts, it is still operational. Blogger, editor Jason Torchinsky has that story, and he'll join us later in the hour. And a a quick heads up, in the second hour, open lines. We will uh, institute uh, an open line segment the first half hour of hour two every week. That's the plan going forward anyhow. And uh, also in the second hour, the story of CubeSat for Disclosure. This is a low-Earth orbit mini-satellite that hunts for UFOs or will hunt for UFOs. It's been uh, funded, and uh, the gentleman who orchestrated the crowdfunding campaign for CubeSat for Disclosure, Dave Schock, will tell us more. Quickly, let me introduce the boys in the band, as always, on the Flying V Gibson guitar, my technical producer, Ian Robertson. On the Rickenbacker bass guitar, and occasionally the theremin, Albert Vinzel, and finally on the Hammond B3, Ryan White, who produces my weekly radio feature, Strange Planet. Uh, Now, it is time for our weekly remote viewing experiment, What's in the Box? And if you'd like to participate, please use the Twitter feed at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. Use the hashtag... TCS Remote. You must use the, the hashtag TCS Remote. All right, dear listener, focus your attention. Here are the coordinates. The object is sitting in a cigar box to my left on the studio desk here at Zoomerplex, 70 Jefferson Avenue in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. There, you have the coordinates. Now, focus. Let the image form in your mind. Allow the shape, the color, the texture to form in your mind. You can tweet me your answer at Richard Serrett. Again, use the hashtag TCS Remote. TCS as in The Conspiracy Show. And we'll do the reveal just after the bottom of the hour. All right. It's time for our panel. Tonight's discussion, has the Trump train derailed? In recent weeks, supporters have been disheartened, particularly after the cruise missile attack on Syria. They see uh, Breitbart publisher Steve Bannon's role being diminished 
son-in-law, Jared Kushner, some see as a more of a liberal elite establishment, having his father-in-law's ear. Has Trump, the popular, a populist rather, the populist disruptor, been co-opted by the globalists? Here to discuss, a good friend of the program, media scientist and official archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan, Nelson Thal. Nelson, welcome. How are you, my friend? Just terrific. This is great. And uh, independent researcher and host of the popular podcast Conspiracy Cafe, independent researcher George Freund. George, welcome to you, sir. Oh, thank you to have us aboard. I miss Nelson. Haven't seen him in so long. Yes, it's good hearing your voice and seeing you in there, George. All right, gentlemen. So, uh, first to you, Nelson. The, uh, the, the first 100 days have come and gone. There have been some, uh, some victories. There have been some, uh, some defeats. But many supporters have been left scratching their heads and wondering whether, in fact, the man that they, they voted for uh, has perhaps been been co-opted, like so many before him. What do you what, give us? Some what do you think are maybe some of the highlights of the first hundred days, and maybe some of the disappointments? And then talk to me about your concerns, if you have any. You know, last time I was on with you, Richard, I said that uh, uh, Trump was backed by the Patriots, the old 1776 movement, the Patriots. They're the value adders. I said. And he's up against the power grabbers, the one word globalists. And I don't think the uh, battle that he's starting to wage is going to be something that goes linearly. There's going to be ups and downs and ups and downs. And your uh, friends, you stay close and your enemies, you keep closer. He knows that. And so Bush, uh, not Bush, uh, Trump keeps his enemies closer so that he can control the situation and uh, work on the art of the deal. Interesting, uh, which may explain then why he has allowed a certain uh, CFR members into the inner circle that has raised, exactly. some eyesbrow, uh, raised some eyebrows. Over to you, George Freund. Um, you're at your appraisal of the first 100 days and maybe some of your concerns. Well, he came out of the box very, very quickly, and it seemed that he was coming out very, very strongly and that we were going to have a good president maybe the president that people wanted, the people's choice. But it appears that uh, somehow something changed, and that was just manifest with his lightning strike 180 on Syria. He said in 2013, and that's the joys of tweeting, is all, it's all over the world. He just said it would be a major faux pas for America, at that time controlled by Mr. Obama, to get involved in Syria, and there would be serious consequences to this, and that it shouldn't be done. And then, lo and behold, he goes and does it. And uh, so he just seemed to change. He seemed to be not the same old Trump. He didn't seem to be the man in charge. He seemed to be the guy who's just following orders. And then for the rest of us who are well-informed, we know about the shadow government, the deep state, and the hold they have on most political leaders on the planet Earth that are still breathing. And we know that it's something happened to him, that he just changed. And then to follow through on the most trivial false flag attack, this sarin gas attack, it was almost comical. The trouble, you know, if you got some high school students to do movies and special effects, you'd probably get a better job than uh, the intelligence agencies do. Because, you know, this is supposed to be like the most deadly poison known to mankind. You know, a couple of drops will, will knock out a small village. And... People are handling the bodies later barehanded without any protection. 
well, you can't have it both ways. Either this is the most dangerous thing known to mankind, or it's not. Well, it's and, an interesting point, George. But I don't, uh, not to put too fine a point on it. And uh, but I, 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 even Assad and 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 the regime in Syria, as far as I know, acknowledge that the attack took place. They what they said was though uh, that it was uh, the terrorists um, uh, that had uh, bombed. The the, the 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 warehouse facility that housed the uh, the chemicals. So they weren't denying that the attack took place. They simply said we weren't responsible for it. And I, and I agree. I, to me, it doesn't pass the sniff test. Why would Assad, uh, after essentially uh, being told uh, by Trump and um, Rex Tillerson that he would be allowed to stay, as far as the Americans were concerned? Also, with the the aid of Putin, it would appear that uh, they were turning the tide in the war, in the war against. Uh, the uh, the rebels. Uh, it made no sense whatsoever for him to suddenly uh, launch a chemical attack against his own people. Um, well, especially so I, when you have fighter bombers and all the other toys of the military, you don't need to do that. High explosives are, are very very effective coming out of uh, these fighter bombers. Right. Let me get Nelson Thal back in here. Nelson, uh, your reaction uh, when when the cruise missile attack was launched? What were your thoughts? Did, did you think that perhaps Trump had capitulated to what George referred to as you know the deep state, the shadow government? No, I, I don't disagree with George. There was a change, but I think that you got to look at what Bush, uh, what Trump said. He said that um, he was draining the swamp. He said that he inherited a mess. And, you know, when you inherit a mess, a lot of times you have to do things suddenly at first, which is just a one-step action. But he's draining the swamp. And remember, we had this coup takeover in 45 and 63. We've had that whole gang of One World guys took over in 45, 63 with Dornberger and Galen and Waldheim, Kurt Waldheim at the UN, Hitler in Argentina. Um, we're fighting back against this coup d'etat, and um, I see Trump as being part of a, that group that's, that's fighting against them, and he's he's in the control tower now, and he's kicked them out, and he still has a lot of dirt that he has look after as I see it and I don't think what I see is happening disagrees with George I think there is a change but I don't think that Trump's lost his understanding and his identity and the and his, his purpose. Media scientist Nelson Thal and the host of the Conspiracy Cafe, George Freund, join us here on the panel on The Conspiracy Show. Has the Trump train been derailed? Uh, uh, George, to Nelson's point, that uh, Trump's strategy here in terms of allowing certain CFR members and so forth into the inner circle, and some of those appear to have his ear, that this is Trump's strategy to keep his enemies closer. Do you buy that? He doesn't have any choice but to keep them closer. And uh, part of the, the risk that uh, Alex Jones put up uh, the other day is there is a move afoot to take him out. There, there are continuity of government plans where if the majority of your cabinet and the vice president say you're unfit to command, they can take you out. They can vote you out, have Congress put together uh, a committee to, to analyze whether you're fit to be president. And a lot of the extremely liberal media especially the Atlantic Magazine and David Frum, are you know, pointing out that uh, that's, that's on the table, and uh, they'll do anything they can to get him out of power. 
My other big concern with Mr. Trump is he's good friends with Rupert Murdoch, and Rupert Murdoch has extensive oil interests in Syria, as well as, uh, you know, Mr. Rothschild. So that's a serious concern that, okay, your golfing buddy, I sent you a picture of them where they're all on the golf cart, and Trump's taking them along the course, and Rupert Murdoch's in the back with his feet up, and it's just, you know, hey, boy, twice around the park and then shine my shoes and bomb Syria. Well, um, my, my understanding is in terms of uh, the, the uh, oil deposits in Syria, they're not expansive, and, and that industry is, is in its infancy. So I don't know. You, you may be right. I, I, I don't see that as being, a, um, you know, an, an overarching concern about the oil reserves in Syria. I may be wrong about that. Uh, Nelson, very quickly to you. What, what do you want to see going forward from Trump to confirm in your mind that the Trump train is still on the rails? I think that he is a art of the deal man, wants to try and put together the biggest deal on, in the planet. And he's talked about it. It's no surprise. It's, he said it. Uh, he wants to do this deal with Abbas and Netanyahu, and to bring about a peace pact, seven-year peace pact, in the Middle East. And that's what he has stated is his goal. Whether he can do it, we'll only have to sit around and watch. I agree with George, the, the ruling elite, what he's saying they want to do. I think they've tried. From what I understand, there's been a number, major attempts, uh, sophisticatedly, to take out uh, Trump. And all I can say to George's point is um, he's gotten this far. I don't think he would have gotten this far if they hadn't tried to throw everything at him already. All right. Uh, quickly, uh, jo- that, just, about out of, um, just about maybe, out of time, Nelson. Maybe jo- he'll survive. Okay. That's George, quickly, question. very quickly in 15 seconds, what do you want? Final word to you, George. What do you want to see from Trump to reconfirm the Trump train is still on the tracks? I want to see him meet Vladimir Putin, and I want to see him uh, bring the world to some peaceful resolution to our problems instead of always saber-rattling. We're using nuclear weapons now, not sabers. All right, and George, got to leave it there. George Freund, the Conspiracy Cafe, Conspiracy Cafe, and Nelson Thal, media scientist, archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. When we come back, theoretical physicist Dr. Ben Tippett says time travel to the past is mathematically possible. That's up next on The Conspiracy Show. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Like a lot of you, As a kid, I marveled at H.G. Wells' novel, The Time Machine, and I watched reruns of Irwin Allen's uh, television program, The Time Tunnel, starring James Dean and Lee Merriweather. Remember that? That's going back 50 years. I I didn't watch it when it it was in its first run, believe me. I watched the uh, the repeats. But time travel remains one of my all-time favorite topics. So imagine my excitement when I read about this recent paper published by my next guest, Dr. Ben Tippett is a theoretical physicist at the University of British Columbia. He's crunched the numbers, and his startling conclusion, time travel to the past is possible. He joins us now. Dr. Tippett, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? 
Hello, Richard. How is everybody out there tonight? Excellent. Are you well rested after our uh, our program on uh, Coast to Coast last night? Whoa, I'm not <laughs> built for these 2 a.m. phone calls. <laughs> well, you uh, acquitted yourself quite nicely. That was um, uh, it's a very difficult uh, a topic to talk about, as you as you mentioned, particularly when it's uh, you know mathematical formulas, and it's one of those things that's given to. Uh, sort of illustrating it rather than talking about it. But you did a wonderful job, and your analogies were very apt and really cemented, I think, in a lot of people's minds how this thing will work. Okay, so let's talk about your conclusion and be clear right. that time travel to the past is mathematically possible, mathematically possible but not necessarily feasible. We should state that uh, from the outset. You, your analogy, uh, your, your comparison was it would be it's 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 possible for a snake uh, to to attend Harvard uh, Harvard, but it's not uh, it's not likely to happen anytime soon. Yeah, that's right. Um, ma- mathematically possible is an interesting is an interesting way of putting it uh, as, as we did in that um, it's something where we have mathematical models that describe it. And there aren't any particular problems with the mathematical models. There are features and attributes of these mathematical models. But then we can ask ourselves, what is physically required to generate one of these features in space-time? Um, what's required to generate one of these features in space-time? What, what type of material is physically required? And then once we have that answer, we can say, how plausible is it that we could build one of these things or see it out there in the universe? Um, so... Our conclusion is, yes, mathematically possible. We're not the first to say it. It's a a long-standing tradition in my field uh, since the 1950s to investigate uh, features like this. Um, But the issue here is, is it physically feasible? And the answer is, it's very, 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 very improbable. You need a type of matter that we've never seen in a laboratory or detected with our telescopes. This is something you called exotic matter, and it, it doesn't exist at the moment. It hasn't been discovered, and so that's sort of the the major, major stumbling block, which would prevent time travel to the past from ever occurring. But that didn't stop you from sort of designing this. Give us a sense of, and you call it the TARDIS, which is very clever, of course, because that was the, the phone, the phone booth uh, devi- travel time machine device used by Doctor Who. Uh, your acronym. Uh, TARDIS. What does it stand for? And then you can explain how this thing operates. Uh, my, my TARDIS, the acronym is Traversable Acausal Retrograde Domains in Space-Time. And all that means, is a, there are a bunch of technical words from, from the type of physics I do. All it means is it's a, it's a little patch, it's a little area, it's a box, essentially. And if you go inside the box, people from the outside will say, hey, that box is moving faster than the speed of light at times, and it's going backwards in time at other times. So that's what the acronym means. It's a box that travels through time. So our mathematical model is of a box where if somebody goes into the box, they can travel in a circle in space and time. Time is the important thing. It travels in a circle in space in that it moves forward and backwards, but it also goes in a loop in time, which means that it ends up at the moment it began its journey. And uh, you, you also describe how the, uh, the TARDIS uh, would move backwards and forwards, but also it would move, I guess, periodically to the side. And the reason mm. for that is we ha- if you were inside the box, y- y- inside the TARDIS, you'd have to get out of your own way as you're coming and going. Of course. 
Of course. I mean, there's, 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 uh, in, in every aspect uh, of this mathematical model, there, there is a physical presence. There's a box that has an outside. Um, it can't pass through itself, uh, and so it would have to move out of its own way to keep from colliding with itself. It, it can't, yeah. And so, and this uh, TARDIS uh, is enclosed inside of a bubble, which would be comp- which would be made up of this exotic matter. Is that the idea? That that's essentially the idea. Yeah. Okay. So, um, describe what one. Th- this was a fascinating part of the the discussion we had last night, and we had two hours. But tonight we have about fifteen minutes. But um, <laughs> we, the describe what someone a passenger inside the TARDIS would see and would experience. Okay, so let's imagine that that a person inside the the TARDIS, uh, you you step into the TARDIS and you're wearing a wristwatch, and outside of the TARDIS there is a, a clock tower, say, and so you can look at the clock outside. Now, as your box goes in a loop in space and time, there's a period where it's moving forward in time and another part where it's moving backwards in time. So if you were to look outside at the clock tower, you would see the hands of the clock moving clockwise as time moved forward in the same direction as your forward time, and then you would see the hands of the clock moving backwards, and the hands of the clock would go for, sorry, uh, clockwise and counterclockwise. So first they'd move clockwise, then they'd move counterclockwise periodically as you went around the circle. The, the fun part of this is that you would, you would look out the window and you would see another version of your TARDIS box, and inside the other version of the TARDIS box, you'd see another version of you uh, standing there. Only the neat thing is the other version of you has time going backwards. So uh, the, the, the funnest way to illustrate this is to imagine that you're inside the box and you're making breakfast. Right. So you're pouring co- cream into your coffee and stirring it up, uh, or, and you're cracking an egg into a skillet and you're frying the egg. And uh, those are both um, irreversible uh, interactions in physics. You can't un, un, you know, uncrack an egg. It, it looks very strange. Right. Anyway, so you are making your breakfast and you look through your window of your TARDIS box and you see through the, the window of the other TARDIS box your doppelganger, someone who looks just like you, but they're making breakfast in reverse. So they're uh, maybe unmaking breakfast Correct. is the phrase. They're uncracking their eggs, putting the eggs from the pans, unfrying them and putting them back in their shell. They're pulling the cream out of their coffee. Everything you did is happening in reverse in in your uh, in your alternate box. Your doppelganger is doing it in the opposite order. Fascinating. Time is, the orientation of time in the other box is reversed compared to your own. Um, so if uh, another observer were looking at this uh, TARDIS, mm-hmm. would they see it moving? They would. Actually, so they would see, there, there's a couple things they would see. The first thing they would see is they would see two versions of the box, okay? Right. And you, I guess, the person making breakfast would be in both of them, and in one of them, they would see time moving forwards, so they would see the person cracking an egg into the pan, and in the other one, they would see time moving backwards. So they, the, 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 the other version of you would be pulling the cream out of the milk. But notably, uh, those two versions of you are essentially uh, two locations where your timeline is intersecting uh, the, the current time, um, the, the external observer's current time. Um, and so, so what's going on here is one of them is you when you're moving forward on one side of the circle, and the other version is you going backwards in time on the other side of the journey. Um, and so you would, the person outside the box is going to see the two boxes moving, 
Um, in this case, where the, the whole thing's going in a circle and ending up exactly where it began, uh, these two versions, these two boxes are going to appear out of nowhere and accelerate away from each other, slow down and stop. And maybe they'll see you uh, walk, op- open the door and walk in, get in, someone get in one side. And maybe they'll see another version of you get out uh, of the same side. And then the door will close. And the two versions of the box will accelerate together, collide, and disappear. Amazing. And they'll stop existing <laughs> in your universe. As, as far as you, the exter- as, as far as the external observer is concerned, there's no trace of you. Because essentially what's happened is your box is turned around in time and is now moving backwards in time. <laughs> Dr. Ben Tippett is uh, with us, theoretical physicist from the University of British Columbia, and he has crunched the numbers and says time travel uh, to the past is possible, at least mathematically. Not necessarily likely, because we have to discover or create this exotic matter uh, which would essentially be the uh, the medium or the the vehicle that would transport his TARDIS device uh, to the past. Any limitations on how far back you could travel, uh, well, a particular time or location? This is this is a this is an interesting issue because um, you know how I said that there's one version of you where time if you're inside the box, uh, you're let's say you Richard are traveling backwards in time. Um, there's going to be a second version of, of the box where you're going backwards in time. Yeah? Right. Uh, that box has to exist for the whole journey. There's, there's no point where it ceases existing. Um, so so uh, technically there's no limit to how far back you can go, but in this mathematical scenario, it's not possible to change the past. And that means that if you did take this journey back, there would be, say, say you wanted to go back to ancient Greece, there would be a historical record of this box with a person sitting inside of it where the person kept making breakfast in reverse order. <laughs> and that box had, had sat around, say, uh, medieval Europe for thousands of years. Let Aristotle uh, uh, figure that one out, yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We, we would have in modern-day records of Aristotle writing about how the strange box is sat, sat motionless for thousands and thousands of years. So... Uh, the long and the story short is, uh, you, your box is always existing over the course of its journey in space and time. And so, uh, if your box, if, if your box, if there's no historical record of your box going there, then I, because you can't rewrite the past, uh, that, that particular journey is probably not possible. <clears throat> All right. Well, uh, yeah, as we can see, I mean, y- you figured out the mathematical formula, but there are so many other variables. As someone in the uh, my, my live chat here has mentioned, and someone on Coast to Coast mentioned last night, location, because you've got the Earth spinning around. You have uh, the planets spinning around. You've got the galaxy moving around. I mean, how how is it possible to ensure that you will uh, actually arrive at the precise location where you want to be without, you know, ending up somewhere out in space? Well, this particular uh, method for going backwards in time, um, it's not uh, because your box is always somewhere. It's it's mathematically possible to 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 mm, generate a model where it sits on Earth, in spite of the fact that the Earth is moving around the Sun and the Sun is moving around the galaxy, etc. Uh, but that's not exactly the model we've done. In, in, in the model, the mathematical model we built, um, it consists of a box out in space where there's nothing. Just going in a circle in time, and so um, it's it's actually much more complicated to to add in all this rotation and and, and proper motion if we're going to keep your box on Earth for the journey. But it's it's mathematically feasible 
given the the technique we use to to put it out in space, I just it's just easier to analyze if it's out in space. And we really wanted to do an analysis that was as simple as possible that would recognize the strengths and weaknesses of this particular mathematical model uh, that didn't get gummed up on additional complicated details. So it's mathematically possible to set one that sits on Earth and goes back in time uh, to ancient Greece, sure, you could do that. It's just a lot of work, and I didn't want to do the work. <laughs> I admire your candor, sir. Dr. Ben <laughs> Tippett is a theoretical physicist from the University of British Columbia. We should also mention your podcast. That's available at the website titaniumphysics.com, correct? That's right. It's the Titanium Physicist Podcast. You can look for it on uh, iTunes if you want. Just Google Titanium Physics. All right. Something also you mentioned very. I love the way that you use movies, uh, sort of t- um, movie uh, summaries, to to demonstrate your point or to illustrate your point. And uh, we we have sort of the uh, the Back to the Future version of time travel to the past, and then we have the Twelve Monkeys version. Uh, explain. Sure. Explain. Yeah. Okay. So um, the wonderful thing about time travel, ever since H. G. Wells, people have been discussing in fiction what it's going to look like. And as a result, we have a whole library of metaphors of storylines that people have watched and are familiar with that we can use to distinguish when we're explaining to people what, what, what time travel entails in this case. Um, so, in my field, if you're going to t- talk about time travel, in the, it's the field of general relativity, Einstein's theory of four-dimensional curved space-times. In this field, Backwards time travel is mathematically possible, but if it happens, it has to obey something called the Novikov self-consistency condition. This came out in the 90s, I think, by a, a Russian, uh, a Soviet physicist named Novikov. And uh, the idea is that you can't change the past. If you go back in the past, you can interact with things, you can eat all the apples you want, you can stomp all the butterflies you want, but doing so will not change history. In fact, your having gone into the past is will be part of history. It's already baked so, into the equation, right. Mm-hmm, that's right. Um, and so the, the best way to explain this is in, in terms of movies. So, like you said, uh, Back to the Future is the time travel movie that everybody loves. It's the one I loved the most when I was a kid. We all love it. And in it, Marty McFly is not allowed to change the past too much, because if he does, he writes out his own existence. That's right? the grandfather paradox. That's called the grandfather paradox. You can't, in the paradox... Uh, if causality is to be assumed, if free will is to be assumed, you should be able to go back in time and, you know, kill your own grandparents. Just if about you do, ex- you will stop so, existing. Sorry, Ben, uh, we're just about out of time here. Very oh, quick, no. in 20 seconds or less, the 12 monkeys scenario. 12 monkeys, the guy, Brad Pitt, uh, he gets sent back in time uh, to catch, because when he was a kid, he saw this, this, some person who was partially responsible for this big flag, but it turns out he was chasing his own future self. In essence, uh, you can end up with loops causal loops in time, but you can't change the past. That's where we're stuck in, in our uh, theory of time travel. Dr. Ben Tippett, again, uh, titaniumphysics.com. Titaniumphysics.com is the website. And uh, congratulations on this paper, and thanks for spending some time with us. Love to have you back on. You're a fascinating guy. Well done. (laughs) Thank you very much. Dr. Ben Tippett. All right, when we come back, the big reveal, what's in the box? And uh, what else we have going on? Oh, the doomsday machine. Dead hand. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. 
The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. And it is time for our reveal, uh, what's in the box. And uh, we ask you to use the Twitter feed at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, and then use the hashtag TCS Remote, TCS as in The Conspiracy Show. And uh, why don't we go around the horn here and uh, those assembled. First of all, on the other side of the glass, Ian Robertson, my technical producer. Ian, what's in the box, my friend? I'm seeing something round. Something round? But, but flat also. Like, I guess like a pancake shape. Round and flat. <laughs> yeah. do, you have, is it, do you have a color in mind? Yeah, I, I see a bit of white and a bit of red. White, red, round, flat. I guess it could be one of those mint candies. A mint candy. Ooh, all right. Okay, so I like, uh, you know, I like the detail that you bring to the table. <laughs> all right, let's go to uh, Albert Venzel, my story producer. My mind keeps going back to stuff you've had in the box before, like a yo-yo or the stuffed toy unicorn. It's just a blank after that. Need to get in more still state, more relaxed. A yo-yo. Is that okay? And uh, finally, over to you, Ryan. Well, kind of like Ian, I was thinking something round, but maybe a, a coin or some currency. All right. None of you are on uh, on the mark, I'm afraid to say. Let's go to the Twitter feed. Daniel says, uh, I see a chain links, like in a keychain. John Porter, a silver medallion the size of a silver dollar. Cards, a hula girl, something tropical. Hector says the box contains a toy. A glue stick from Aaron. Let's do the reveal. Ladies and gentlemen, we need a drum roll next time. We blew our budget. Okay, there it is. It's a banana. A banana. That's what I had for breakfast this morning. So I just threw the other one in the box, and there you go. All right, now we're going to institute a, a brand-new segment on the program, although from time to time we do read emails and tweets and so forth. But we are going to uh, try and do this every week. So let's go into the uh, the mailbag. And Albert Vinzel, what do we have? The first one is from Scott, and we won't use the last name, but he's listening in Southern California. And he says, I was listening to your recent show on turmeric, which I've used daily for years. Oh, turmeric. That was with uh, Dr. Cass Ingram. Yes. Right. And I thought a discussion on medical cannabis would be interesting. We are fortunate to have one of the top MDs in the world in the practical use of cannabis here in SoCal. Her name is Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. This is a link to her current book. She helped my former assistant with breast cancer. It's in complete remission of only six weeks of using medical cannabis. Another one from... Oh, uh, let, me just, let me just jump in on okay. that. Uh, first of all, uh, a turmeric. I, I should mention that Dr. Cass Ingram was uh, kind enough to send some uh, my way. And my mother-in-law, I hope she doesn't mind me mentioning this, uh, she's been in some pain and uh, she has experienced some relief from it. That's simply anecdotal evidence that I'm throwing out there. But turmeric, uh, for those who didn't hear the show... Obviously, I mean, it's one of the active uh, sort of ingredients in, in curry dishes, and it's enjoyed, obviously, by uh, many people in, in, uh, in, in Asia and elsewhere, anyone who enjoys Indian cuisine. And um, it's, a, it's an amazing antioxidant and um, an anti-inflammatory, and a lot of people swear by it. So people with arthritis and so forth. Uh, so turmeric, turmeric um, and there, there, are, there are many, many um, peer-reviewed studies that have been done on this, and um, so check it out at your at your health food store. Now, medical marijuana. We have done a number of shows on that, and I'm certainly not uh, opposed to doing some more. So uh, keep that number, that name of that doctor in Southern California on file, Albert, and maybe we'll reach out. Bonnie Goldstein. 
All right. Uh, okay. Uh, there's another email. Her first name is Mimi. And I think it's probably because of the elections today in France. But she writes, it seems like George Soros has an evil ambition to control the world and with a one-world government. He has influence on U.S. elections and links to the ultra-secretive Bilderberg group, a spider web of evil goings-on. Do you dare to unveil all of this on your program? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, we've talked about George Soros, haven't we? Daniel Esseling. Yeah, we've yes. done the Bilderbergs many times. <laughs> well, we've talked about the Bilderbergs, and I don't think we've done a show specifically about George Soros, but his name comes up often on the program. And of course, uh, he, I mean, he's, he's a huge hedge fund guy worth, you know, more money than God, and has thrown that money in behind a number of NGOs. Uh, the Open Society, for example, he is seen as sort of the man that orchestrated or at least helped fund what are called these color revolutions that took place, you know, during the, during the Arab Spring. And uh, some even suggest that he is behind, in part, this huge migrant crisis in Europe. It's not about helping refugees. It's about importing low-wage workers in order to keep the EU afloat. Uh, and uh, certainly he has been behind many of the demonstrations uh, the anti-Trump demonstrations in the United States and, and some of the college demonstrations and the violence that has erupted there, uh, the left, uh, resorting to some very violent tactics. So George Soros' names come, his name comes up a lot, and maybe we will do that. Is it Mimi? We'll dedicate a, a show, and we'll do uh, the entire, not an entire show, but we'll do a segment on George Soros. Thank you for that. We'll uh, take a time out when we come back. The Russian doomsday device. They developed back in the uh, the former Soviet Union in the 80s, and they still have it. You'll learn about the weapon code name Dead Hand next, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. i got to get my glasses uh, fixed. I missed this on Twitter. Heidi and her husband correctly identified the object in the box. And she, uh, she tweeted this 41 minutes ago. She said, my husband and I think it's a banana. So Heidi... You are the winner, and um, please get in touch with us. Uh, send me an email through the website, and uh, we will um, send you out some lovely Conspiracy Show merchandise. And you can check out the online store, T-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and so forth, theconspiracyshow.com, theconspiracyshow.com, and, and uh, find the, uh, the online store. Heidi, congratulations. Well done. You see, for those who don't believe in the power of remote viewing, We've had winners like the last two or three weeks, I think. Haven't we, gentlemen? I think so. All right. Uh, if you've seen the Stanley Kubrick uh, film, and certainly one of my faves, Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, you're familiar with the concept of a doomsday device or Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Do you remember that? Um, the idea is you have this ultimate nuclear weapon that guarantees nuclear devastation and retaliation if someone launches a, an attack against you. Well, the Soviet Union apparently, developed such a device back in the mid-1980s, and by all accounts, it is still operational. It goes by the chilling codename Dead Hand. Here to tell us more is Jason Torchinsky. He's the senior editor of Jalopnik.com, and he joins us, I believe, from Los Angeles. Jason, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Excellent. Thank you. All right, so the idea of a doomsday device, one, one might say, well, wait a minute, 
the, the Russians have more nuclear bombs than they know what to do with. And the United States, the same. We've got uh, submarines with nukes. We've got ballistic missiles uh, with nukes. Don't we already have doomsday devices? How is this well, different? Yeah, here's here's what's different. We both have, you know, we both have weapons capable of destroying, you know, everything that makes civilization possible, and many times over. Exactly. But that's not exactly what a doomsday device is. Um, and the reason why this doomsday doomsday device exists at all has to do with what you mentioned before, with the the submarine launch capability. And I'll explain. So, basically. The way conventionally uh, and a, a nuclear war would be expected is we'd be using ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, which would be a missile that would be launched from uh, one country. It would make a parabolic, uh, you know, not quite in orbit. It would just go into space in a parabolic arc and then come down on the other country. With multiple warheads. Multiple warheads. But yeah. the thing about these is um, these launches are detectable. And in conventional, well, whatever you would call it, conventional nuclear warfare, you'd be able to tell, and then you'd probably have about 30 minutes of advance warning before those warheads came raining down, making everything miserable for you. Right. So that's how it conventionally is. However, once uh, the U.S. started to actually have uh, submarine-based nuclear missiles, tridents and things like that, they did that before the Soviets had them. That meant that the 30-minute warning could no longer be counted on because a submarine-launched missile could be very close to the Soviet Union. It could have launched missiles, and the amount of warning they would have would be minutes at best. You know, it would be in a tiny amount of time that would not allow them to work up any retaliatory strike. Right, so that, that, now, that, uh, yeah. that strategic uh, advantage throws the whole mutually agreed destruction or assured destruction yeah. thing out the window and causes exactly. a serious impact. You know, it's very unstable, that type of situation. Exactly. So when, when both sides know they can destroy each other, then basically nothing happens because it's not worth it to anybody. But once one side gets an advantage like that, then hypothetically the U.S. would have a first-strike advantage to such a degree over the Soviet Union that it, you know they could actually defeat them. Um, now, the Soviets realized this, and the Soviets didn't have, uh, at the time, didn't have submarine-launched missiles available, so they needed... They needed some way to get back to that stalemate, some way to get back to the mutually assured, assured destruction, which basically is what was keeping that Cold War peace going for so long. So Dead Hand was kind of the result of that, was, was the end result of their goal there. And if you think about it, so it is technically, I guess, what we would consider a doomsday device, but as we talk about it, I think you may come to realize it's, it's a good thing, as strange as it is to say, uh, what Dead Hand ends up doing is actually probably a net positive for everybody. So here's the way it works. Um, the Dead Hand system, uh, or they call it the perimeter system, technically in Russia, like system perimeter, um, it's, it assumes, okay, so it, it checks for some certain criteria, uh, meaning the a first strike against the Soviet Union. So it's going to try to see, it's going to use seismic events, it's going to check, you know, a number of different factors to see if there's actually been a nuclear strike, and then it's going to basically see if you can call home to the Soviet head command of everything and see if there's a phone, a line open, you know, like a communications line. Right, open. so it's fully automatic, this thing. To a degree, not entirely. It's partially, it's sort of automatic. Basically, as soon as, it's not always on, but as soon as things get a little weird or tense, uh, it can be turned on. Like so now. Say <laughs> like now, okay, let's say, like, hypothetically, like now, Somebody may have turned the switch for Dead Hand on. So Dead Hand is now active. Um, 
if it meets, so it's going to look for criteria, like did a bomb hit? Do we have seismic activity? Are we getting radiation levels? And then it's going to check, do I have a communications line to head to the, the command center? And if it does, it's not going to do anything because they're still there. If it doesn't, if that line is dead, then it's going to assume the worst has happened. You know, the it's been a decapitation-type strike where the Soviet command is gone. And then the, then the system goes to – there's a special bunker. It's probably the best protected place in case of a nuclear war anywhere in the world, where there's some poor bastard is sitting there working, and it's their job to decide go or no go. Um, so it's not 100% automatic. It basically – it can give control over everything to one person who skips the entire chain of command. So all this one person has to do is say, we've been hit, we're, we're, you know, we're boned, and let's do something about it. And if they say yes, then what happens is, because the main control system is gone, a rocket is launched that, instead of having a warhead, has a radiation-hardened uh, radio transmitting system. And this rocket basically flies over the Soviet Union, broadcasting out... Uh, the you know launch commands to whatever's left, to whatever's available to launch and go to a preset of targets. So basically, it's a way to guarantee no matter what happens, if the entire you know Kremlin and Politburo and everybody is all of Moscow is wiped out, there's always a way for a retaliatory strike to happen, no matter what. Right. Because there's one guy in a bumper just has to say yes, he's protected, and then the radio the radio broadcasting rocket flies out. All the missiles fly back, and all of a sudden we're back at nobody wins. Jason sure destruction. Jason Torchinsky is with us. He's the senior editor at Jalopnik uh, dot com, and uh, so when we think of a doomsday device, I mentioned. Uh, well, you 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 write about uh, uh, Kubrick's um, yes. uh, Doctor Strange Love, and I mentioned uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. You know this. We often think of a doomsday device as just that one sort of device. It's this huge yeah. mother Big of a glowing orb and exactly coming out of it. But yeah, wires. But, and, yeah. but 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 Dead Hand is is not actually just one device. It's kind of a whole system, isn't it? It is. It's a system. There are specific devices towards it. That rocket that. You know, broadcast the commanding rocket. Yeah, yeah, the commanding rocket that only exists in the context of something like this. Uh, the U.S. had a similar version of that kind of thing too. Um, so that's you know, but but as far as like one device, that's not really the case. It's basically, you know, a system of devices, and it's using the existing nuclear infrastructure uh, to achieve its goals. But here's the thing about it, and this is what makes it really interesting. Um, what Dead Hand actually ends up doing is it gives, it gives the people who are actually in charge and making these decisions like some breathing room. It actually lets them relax. Because once Dead Hand is activated, which you do early on in, in the, in, you know, when things are getting tense, they activate Dead Hand. And then from that moment on, that means no matter what happens, somebody's going to get theirs if the, if the Soviet Union, or I guess now Russia, is gone. So they have so like they 15 minutes to, to an hour, and then they can override it and turn it off right. if, they did, if they so choose. Exactly. Yeah, and that 15 minutes to an hour thing, uh, that criteria only is activated if the line to central command is dead. So as long as it can talk, as long as it can call home, it's not going to do anything, because there's still, that says there's still an organization in place to make the actual decision. When that line goes dead... That's when the timer counts down, 15 minutes to an hour. I don't really know what it's set to. But um, from that point on, uh, after that period of time, which would give someone a last chance to, like, say, no, 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 you know, cut it off, 
uh, from that period of time, that's when the person in the shielded bunker can decide to, you know, lay waste to everybody. So what it does is, in times of tension, instead of the Soviets feeling like, or I guess the Russians now, feeling like they have to act, they absolutely have to act and act fast because they have to. They feel like they may have to make a decision rapidly because thanks to submarine-launched missiles, they may not have time to retaliate. This takes away all that pressure. They can take their time. They can take a moment, breathe, look at the is decide if it's real, decide if it's worth it, all the time knowing, no matter what happens. Okay, we're, we're kind of losing you, Jason. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, your cell phone is cutting out or your Skype. Jason Torchinsky, senior editor at Jalopnik. Let me spell that for you, jalopnik.com, J-A-L-O-P-N-I-K.com, yeah. jalopnik.com, and he is writing well, about... a car set. <laughs> yes, I, I, I gathered that, but this is an interesting uh, sort of departure for you. You're writing about this doomsday device developed by the Soviet Union in the mid-'80s, yeah. still operational. And we're just about out of time, but... Typically, when we think of a doomsday device, it's something that you want the world to know about uh, yeah. because you don't want them to try anything silly or foolish. And yet, the this wasn't really known until it was kind of leaked by a, a former Soviet colonel, right? What's the point of yeah. keeping something like this secret? Well, it's the thing is, it's a little different than the Doctor Strangelove type because, as we were saying before, its goal is less about making other countries think twice, as much as it is about making the Soviets and now Russians think twice. As much as it's, you know, even though it's very similar to a traditional doomsday machine in that, you know, if you attack us, there will be an automatic retribution, their goal is a little different. Their goal is for their, it's internal, it's to let their own people relax and know they can take the time to make a smart decision and you don't have to worry about an immediate retaliation because you think this might be your last chance. There you There's go. Always another chance. Dead hand, the Soviet doomsday device. Who would have thought? A, a reasoned, very pragmatic and practical yeah. approach uh, to sort yeah. of redressing the imbalance in nuclear war capability and uh, bringing back mutually agree- assured destruction. Uh, Jason Torchinsky, senior editor at Jalopnik.com. Thank you so much. We'll have you again, Jason. You were terrific. I appreciate it. You guys have a great night. All right. Ahead in the second hour... Open lines. Let me give you the phone numbers, 416-360-0740, 866-740-4740. Open lines, next on The Conspiracy Show.